You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. So, John and City Lights are no strangers. We go back many, many years to his days at Granta. Uh, He's edited and really championed the work of some amazing writers the world over. And also, an amazing writer in his own right. His books include How to Read a Novelist, Tales of Two Cities, Tales of Two Americas, and Maps, his debut collection of poems. He's an executive editor at LitHub, also teaches at New School and the New York University. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review. It's been translated into many, many languages. Um, So for the last few years, he's been engaging in this wonderful journal, Freeman's, every time he picks a subject and then picks some amazing writers to cover the issues. And so tonight, as I said, it's like an all-star cast. We've got Rabbi Alamadine, we've got Lauren Markham, we've got Tommy Orange, H.R. Smith, Shoba Rao, Oscar Villon. I mean, what can I say except welcome and, oh, and Jaime. And (laughs) (laughs) so... Yeah, and, and, and of course others. And so, um, welcome back, all of you. Uh, uh, thank you, Peter. Um, thank you all for coming. It's so nice to be back at City Lights. Uh, putting together an anthology, magazine, whatever you want to call this, antho journal. Um, the goal is to try to make what feels like a bookstore like this in print, just a little bit more portable. Um, and typically, putting together these issues, I'm often trying to create a, a space which might exist in differentiated ways in real life, but is not in one place. Um, and to create spaces like home, uh, family, um, and, and in which writers can have a kind of conversation in which the, the deeper complexities of those issues can live and not injure us, but actually maybe uplift us or, or at least do something entertaining. Uh, this issue is different because um, you know, living in New York as I have, um, unfortunately, for the last 30 years, I grew up in Sacramento. Um, one of the bizarre and peculiar things about living there is, is watching California literature um, explode uh, in so many ways uh, about the writers who are working here and the forms they're working in. Uh, more writers from this state have won Pulitzers in the last 10 years than from anywhere else in the Union. Um, and also writers here are tackling issues that a lot of the rest of the country are thinking that it's optional to address, whether it's the climate crisis, whether it's who lives in a state and how they're represented in in the fiction, Um, dealing with indigenous uh, issues. Uh, And for me, right now, California is leading American letters by a long, long way, similar to the way that California as a republic is leading the nation towards progressive change, uh, while the the nation is struggling mightily uh, with someone who thinks a coup is happening. So for, for me, the purpose of putting all these writers in the issue is almost um, slightly retrograde. It's capturing what has been happening here for a long time and trying to get as many of the most exciting things in the issue as possible and to spread it. So I don't have to spread this gospel to you because you live here and you've been watching this and hearing these writers read. Um, but still, because we're all here, I thought we could have a conversation about what it means to write in and of uh, and about California. What are the challenges of writing of a state that is so often uh, projected as a dream, um, that is often full of massive occlusions within its history? 
Um, what are the relationships between those um, absences within its history and the dream? Um, so these are some of the things uh, we're, we're going to talk about. And as we speak uh, and have a conversation, Robbie will look happier and yeah. joyous. <laughs> he will tap dance. Um, and after that, uh, someone will read, and then we'll go back to having a conversation. Um, but before we start, uh, not to put a spotlight on someone else's health, but Rebecca Solnit has ghost edited this issue. A third of the people have come from the... <laughs> Virtually a third have come from the Solnit Farm Leagues, um, <laughs> which God bless them if, I hope, if they could only um, play for the Giants too, yeah, that would be a really good thing. Um, but I, I, I want to start off um, with a quote that actually is from Robbie's piece, which is called How to Bartend, which is not an instruction manual. It's a way of um, thinking of memory. It says, memory is the mother's womb we float in as we age, what sustains us in our final days. And I wonder, because all of you are writing to some degree through and at least touching memory, uh, what it means to um, activate memory in a state where uh, memory has been a complicated thing socially. Uh, who wants to take the easy question at the beginning? How about the person who was filing her story from the car as she came here? Uh, there's a microphone which we can pass to you. This is Lauren Markham. Hi. Um, so in the piece that I wrote about, um, is, was I supposed to come up here? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, thanks, guys. <laughs> here I am. Um, the, the piece that um, is in this issue is, is sort of about um, the connection between memory and mythology and the sort of like personal mythologies that we create in a family and that then pervade the state, um, particularly to like the settler history of this, of this state. Um, so when I think of, of, of memory as related to California, I actually think about the ways in which we sort of constructed, yeah, these, these narrative mythologies about who we are and who belongs and who doesn't belong. And it's, it's um, really interesting and upsetting to see that kind of pushed today, um, both in terms of immigration, in terms of like indigenous land rights. Mm. As you might know, Lauren is the author of The Faraway Boys, which won the Northern California Book Award. Um, and you've, you've worked as a reporter, uh, as a journalist, as an activist. Um, what, is it, what does that mean when you turn those instruments on your family's story? Um, because I think what you're doing in this uh, issue is something I wish more um, Caucasian Californians mm -hmm. did and it sort of investigated because it, it too often falls the burden to people who are not Caucasian to sort of carry that narrative as if those who look like me or you um, just happen to exist here yeah. all along. And, and that we claim some sort of belonging. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, for a long time I sort of was like, I'm a fifth generation Californian, and especially living, which I am, um, or depending on when you start counting, fifth or fourth. Um, and I used to sort of wear that as a badge, I, I would say, um, especially having grown up here and then being in San Francisco and then being priced out of the city. Um, and, and I feel like I was trained both in my education and in my family to think of myself as like really belonging here um, and never ever to really question like what what that at what cost that belonging came and like um, on on whose backs and and to what you know the the I, I think I was trained to think of it as a, as a narrative of like my family sacrificed for for me to have this belonging and, and of course um, they were actually um, they, it was a pretty pretty violent past that, that some of my ancestors were engaged in so I really wanted to to probe that myth and dismantle it, and I feel like it's absolutely our responsibility to do that. Mm -hmm. Oscar, your your um your story, which is kind of a ghost story, which is part of a series of 
ghost stories you've been writing about, you know, your family and, and your family's past begins in a landscape which is not in California, it begins in Mexico and, and carries itself here. And I wonder, Same difference. I, I wonder if you can talk about that. Well, um, yeah, well, so in this particular story, um, it's uh, more or less how um, uh, my father uh, basically uh, found himself in California and found himself in a certain way that uh, echoed how his father wound up in, in California. But um, I, I kind of get back to something you said earlier, talking about memory. I think uh, in, in the state of California, so I would be one, maybe second generation California, maybe 1.5, depends on how you want to look at it. Um, and the funny thing is that, you know, writing being recently new to the state, which is to say new to, to America, um, there's these sort of uh, sort of undercurrent of other memories here, particularly depending where you come from, but being Mexican, uh, you, you find yourself in Southern California and LA, um, and you find yourself immersed already in these sort of, I don't know what, what you would call it, but maybe a, a, a long pool or a deep pool of experiences and sort of memories that are already there um, that you kind of wade into. Um, they're not necessarily yours because you just got there, but yet somehow it all makes sense. Somehow these sort of uh, histories and these sort of, if you will, dreams about this place kind of seep in and it makes things, I want to say, almost sort of confusing. And in this kind of piece that I did, um, that sort of confusion over memory, over, over, over uh, who came before you and you know, what comes next uh, is, is kind of sort of what I was playing with. You know, the takeaway basically being that um, the more you, you, you get into it, the less clear things seem. Um, you know, um, uh, yeah. Shobi, your story is sort of situated against the backdrop of a, of a very clear, distinct period, which is it begins in a, in a classroom as a group of students are watching the, the space shuttle uh, Challenger um, begin its uh, fatal um, brief journey. And I, I wonder if you, can, if you can talk a bit about how um, mapping against something that is, that is sort, of, sort of nationalized like that um, is in some ways, uh, at least when you're narrativizing sort of the story of a family and a girl, um, is, is, a, is a form of claiming um, or a, a false claim. Well, you know, I, in writing that story, I thought a lot about myself sitting in a classroom watching the liftoff of the Challenger, which I did living um, as an immigrant uh, in Indiana, from, from India. Um, and, you know, I really wanted to explore the corrosiveness of memory. Um, and how it can really impact the life of an immigrant. But also, speaking more of your question, just the failure of the American dream. Just it's, it's um, what it promises and what it withholds and all the ways in which certainly my family has been um, absolutely assaulted by what it has not given. And I consider you know, we're a model minority family and all, but I'm talking about the, the way in which our blood flows has changed and the way in which we interact with each other as members of a nuclear family has completely been altered mm. by the process of immigration um, and in very troubling ways. Mm. And so that is what I really want to explore, that, how that is deeply tied to 
miles off this country. Mm. Tommy, in your story, Copperopolis, is your your character uh, is sort of approaching a vortex which maybe proceeds out of different causes to some degree than what Shoba just described, but it has similar psychological effects on the character. And I, I wonder if you can if you can talk about um, you know the way that story is is where it's set, set because you've called the story Copperopolis, and I, you're um, among many other things a deliberate writer. And what you were um, doing by sort of putting that marker at the start of the story? Um, can I first get a definition of what a deliberate writer means? <laughs> <laughs> um, you did it on purpose. <laughs> well, uh, nothing is lost on you. How about that? I mean, as in your. Uh, you're extremely in control of the effects that you're creating. And, and so uh, the, 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 the shape of your story, the details of your story, and the signifying that your story is doing um, is something that you're simultaneously doing all at once. Thank you. That's just... just compliment my way out of the question. <laughs> yeah, so um, moving to, to Copperopolis, um, was a, a pretty crazy culture shift for me. Uh, my wife grew up there. She's half Chinese, half white. Uh, they commuted to Stockton, so had more of an inner city experience. Just sort of transplants from this weird small town um, in the foothills of the Sierras. And so we moved out there because we both lost our jobs because of a tribal leadership change at a, an organization we both had jobs lined up for. And um, in terms of, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> Just say what you... Why am I in, in Copperopolis? Or? Um, you've titled, uh, why did you title the story Copperopolis? Because so much of what's happening is happening in the character's head. Um, and so to title this, this story about a, um, a, a psychic state after a physical place. I know how to answer that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's my fault. Um, so the story, after getting out of writing the novel, um, I was so excited to write anything else. Um, and that happened to be some autobiographical stuff that felt really real. Um, so the story is about a character who's um, living in Copperopolis with his wife's parents, and it's horrible. Um, and so much so he's thinking about robbing a bank, and he's working at a subway, and he's a poet also. Um, The decision to write about this whole experience, um, it just felt, I felt enriched by being surrounded by a Trumpian area. Uh, Trumpian's maybe too grand sounding, but everyone loves Trump where I live, it's horrible. Um, but to be in a to sort of retrospectively have lived 
where we at the time were sort of desperate for how to figure out living um, while also being entrenched in this um, rural situation um, and literally feeling like I wanted to rob a bank to get out of that situation um, really propelled the story that I ended up telling in this issue because it, it was exciting to write something that felt new and outside of the novel and that came from my life but also to write something that felt super true to what it feels like right now mm -hmm. to live where I live the, des the desperate nature of like robbing a bank doesn't seem that crazy I, mean, I was living with my parents and mom and they're Trump supporters and they have a flag flying from a truck um, <laughs> so it didn't seem it didn't seem that crazy um, so it was, it was really freeing to, to be able to write something like this that seems so it's it's so like auto fiction whatever character is named Tom yes but also like so made for fiction, like so much happening right now, is is feels more made for fiction than reality. Mm -hmm. um, so it it was so freeing to do, and um, and also scary. Mm. When you said um, you know so so much of what's happening right now feels made for fiction and almost super real, um, I I was immediately thought of Heather Smith's piece. Um, not only because it's about these um, bison, but because there's a bison named Ben Harrison um, who uh, is brought to San Francisco, uh, gets married, um, and whose life sort of unfolds over the course of the story that she tells about um, uh, these animals. And, uh, you know, I, I, reading Lauren's piece and, and yours as well, um, I realized that this kind of um, bizarro world that we're living in um, has been part of California in history for a, a long time because it's the only way that uh, California could actually deal with its history was make of it a kind of carnival. Uh, and I, I wonder, you know, Heather, who's sitting in the front row here, um, works um, at the Sierra Club um, as an editor, uh, but I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, sort of reanimating that history uh, as, a, as a writer in the form that you did um, and how, to some degree, uh, you know, Tommy plays quite, he quite plays down some of the aspects he just described. You just feel it in the, in the, in the tension inside the character, that he's right on the edge. Um, you feel that he's sort of surrounded by a pressure that he cannot name. Where Heather, in your piece, um, it, the, the, some of the elements that are pressurizing uh, California at that time are just right out in the open um, and become these sort of fantastical um, ways of, of conceiving of um, curating the natural environment that is brought to California and demonstrated to it. And I, I, can you talk about um, when you narrate that as an essayist, how you don't reiterate um, that attitude towards curating history? This is like literary karaoke uh, of California karaoke. 
one of the things that was really interesting working on that particular essay was that um, journalism was really bad. <laughs> but I mean, if you think of it as bad today, but in the in the 1890s, it's kind of spectacular just how much of it is just blatant editorializing about how appropriate it is to murder people. <laughs> and so, and there is this element of like carnivalesqueness to it, like the fact that um, even like there's this, I think it's a goat in the park that is um, being fed too much candy by children, and this newspaper writer is, is editorializing that it's the goat's fault, and that it's like this moral judgment on like how it couldn't control its appetites. Um, but how the goat probably realizes that now and is like a little penitent. Um, so I, I could only imagine what the life of a journalist was during that time period. Um, Hmm. And I don't know how much that applies to my job today, except that I'm constantly dealing with like this. This year, Club and Sierra Magazine are like a place where a lot of different ideas about California and nature and like what it means to be a good person and what it means to live in harmony and nature converge. And it is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> we get a lot of interesting, not only letters but pitches that like. I feel like there's, it's, there's some deep myth in there. Well, Rebecca has in one of her essays, I think that she gave as a talk at, at Berkeley Journalism School, where, um, this, this term breaking the narrative. Break the story. Break the story. And by which she means breaking broken narratives, which are existing right in front of you, and we reshape them um, into something that's a bit more um, supple in its understanding of what actually is there. And what is there in the history? What is there in landscape? What is there? What, what's in people's lives? And um, Robbie's last book, *The Angel of History*, was a, a, an, an amazing novel about, uh, in some ways, the, the sort of this idea that the past is the past, um, and that what what happened in the in the '70s and '80s and early '90s here um, during the, the the worst parts of the AIDS crisis. Um, was so far away as to be part of a museum, and the narrator um, uh, runs into someone, uh, you know, at, at some fancy restaurant, um, who who look who treats the main character as a kind of living museum piece. It's like, oh, you're part of living history, um, and that was then, and it and it precipitates a kind of breakdown for the character, um, and, and then he go during the course of um, a series of treatments, he has a conversation with Satan, uh, among other people, and the gods that are carved into a bookcase um, that was meaningful to this character during the death of people that were close to him. Did I do a fair job of summarizing that? I don't know, but it sounds more interesting than my book. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, this, this is the, the, the CBD cliff notes. Um, but, you know, I, I wonder, I'm, I'm giving you that praise of the book because what Robbie has written here is a different kind of meditation on, on memory um, in How to Be a Bartender. Um, you know, which I asked you to write because I, I, I never thought you forced me to write. Yeah. <laughs> I I cajoled you heavily into writing this, but it, it, I began because I Robbie, to me, never has had a job. But then he told me he had, he was a bartender, um, and then he told me that he was a bartender at an Irish bar, um, and and then it, he proceeded to tell us a series of stories, and and the closer the stories got to. Um, the sort of core of that experience, the more they touched some of what I just described, but also your, your soccer playing. 
And so I guess my question after this endless preamble um, is, <laughs> is, is how, uh, when you were writing this piece, um, did you know that it was going to end up there? Or did you think actually you were going to simply tell the story of working at the bar and tell the story of the, how the bar overlapped with football? Or did you know that you were going to have to um, eddy towards the things I've just described? No, I, I, I never know when I said something what it's going to be like. Uh, and this one shook me uh, because uh, I think it's the first time in print that I admit that I'm HIV positive. Although, like my psychiatrist said, that the first book basically said the same thing, except that I said it was fiction, so you could hide behind it. This is not fiction. So it was the first time, and I've never, you know, I didn't think that's where it was going. Uh, but then when, when that came up, uh, it, it just brought up a lot of shit. Mm. So basically that's it. The, the <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to let him get off uh, that easy. Uh, the piece is so beautiful because it situates moments of hysterical comedy um, next to things that are that are really just absolutely uh, devastating and it seems like where that lives the most is in um, actually in sort of acts of violence one of them is on the football field where uh, your activism in ACT UP is sort of mirrored by the ways that your football team is, is bullied um, and then it's in the bar where you are dealing with a similar type of bully but are actually defended by um, the Irish patrons who, at a at a glimpse, you would think this these would not be um, the most uh, logical allies to you. And and I wonder if when you think back on that time, if if violence is one of the um, underlying kind of electric memory parts of it. No, and violence is a big part of this. And if you are an immigrant, violence is what you face almost every single day. I mean, but what is interesting to me is not that. It's how much I put it aside. Uh, the dream of California and the dream of America took a long time for me to die, even though I was being attacked on a regular basis when I first arrived. And I just put that all aside. I mean, everything from the gay fashion to the being called names in class to standing in front of you know the classroom trying to do a presentation and, and the American kids making fun of me. All that I put aside. And then all of a sudden, it comes back. And what happened with that story was that it came back. What happened with the book was it came back. I realized that all my life, there are these sort of strong memories that I have luckily been able to put aside for a while. Unfortunately, now they come back up. I mean, when Tony was saying he's living in a place where it's all Trump land, I felt that I arrived at a place where it's all Trump land, except that they smile more. You know, but it's the same sort of, like, who is this? Where do I fit in? I'm never able to figure it out. I'm sure um, Shoba or Tanya, Tommy, I wonder if either of you could read uh, a graph or two from your story, because I think both of them speak to um, what, what Robbie just said right now. And, 
Tommy, in your story, maybe it's more because the violence um, that the character is feeling is something that he's begun to um, turn on himself. This is what I meant when I said deliberate. <laughs> I think I have to start from the beginning. I have to stop when it seems like it's too much. On my days off, I walk the narrow blacktop roads of an area called Diamond Twine in the small town of Copperopolis. We're in the foothills of the Sierras now. It's barely still in what can be considered Northern California. The sun's right above me, pressing on the back of my neck. I reach back and cover it, keep my hand there. It's the middle of the day, in the middle of the summer, which out here means it's hot as hell. I'm just coming back from one to hell. Or I'm still in one and I've gotten so used to it I started calling it something else. The heat here is dry and mean and everywhere. It crushes, seeps, floats up in waves like smoke from the pavement, gets into the brain, slows the thinking. I pass under the shade of an, of an oak and look down at my shadow, which is joined by the shadow of a tree, so mangled by or mingled with branch shadows it becomes a new thing, a shadowed object, like and not like me or the tree. The blending of images only possible where light can't be. The shine of gold and the tall dead grass makes me think of the people who came to these hills for gold. The rush to get it. And then thinking of that time, thinking of those miners, makes me think of Indians. Who would have been here and been seen as in the way. I'm thinking of native people here because I am one. Not full-blooded, but enough. We natives are always looking for our presence in the absences. I look up on my phone whether there are ever Native Americans in Copperopolis. There's a small entry on an abandoned website about signs of human settlement dating 10,000 years back. Human remnants, it says. This makes me think of remains and how we use that word to describe people who haven't remained at all but left. What time didn't get it at them all the way? I look up, up as if to get out of the gloom of that thought and see turkey vultures circling what must be something dead or dying nearby. I think about how things must stink worse in the heat. There's a big field of tall dead grass the vultures are circling above. The stalks of yellow move a little from hot wind that, instead of cooling me, just reminds me of how hot the heat is. I find that I'm swaying a little like the grass. I look down and watch my mangled shadows sway.
Actually, I, I wonder, Lauren, if you could just read a tiny bit from your piece, because I feel like um, you're uh, writing in a similar direction. So the, the essay is called uh, The California Pageant. It's if you look at a topographical map of California, you see a hollow basin in the state center that spreads 50 miles east-west between the Sierra Nevada mountains and the coast range, and some 550 miles north-south between the towering crags of Mount Shasta and the creeping section of I-5 called the Grapevine that twines its way through the electric poppy fields before dumping into Los Angeles. This massive level basin is California's Central Valley, whose shape resembles the state in miniature, a state nestled within a state. It's flat and it's vast, like the skin of an upside down drum. But in the northern quarter of the Great Expanse, near Chico, is a tiny cluster of topography, the Sutter Buttes, or what's been called by NASA, the smallest mountain range in the world. In a state that loves its vistas, the buttes come as a welcome relief from the Central Valley's fertile, flat monotony that, on closer look, isn't so monotonous at all, only flat. The twisting rows of raisin grapes, the sturdy olive orchards, the low leafy lettuce patches, the waving safflower fields that burn so bright golden in late spring that my aunt always felt driving through them to visit her godmother that she was galloping on wheels through her own personal yellow brick road. This part of California feeds millions in the United States and abroad. Only 1% of the nation's total farmland. It contributes more than 8% of its crops. We talk a lot more about crops, but I'm going to skip ahead here. Um, the buttes rise out of these vast, fertile flatlands like a dazzling cluster of fangs. They are magnificent and strange, these volcanic formations appearing suddenly within the great golden bowl of California and then folding back into the level expanse as though a trick of the craving eye, a mirage. The buttes, which are now the single largest uninterrupted habitat in all of the 18,000 square miles of the Central Valley, were formed some 1.4 million years ago by tectonic activity and volcanic eruptions, and they have created a sense of wonder for millennia too. Mountains have a magnetic quality, particularly when you can behold them in full. People want to see them, to climb them, to know them, even to possess them. This being California and the United States, these formations are historic indigenous land. What are now officially named the Sutter Buttes were formerly known as Middle Mountain, or Spirit Mountain, or the Houstonian, and they're still known as as well. This was a sacred place to many Native people of the area before the settlers came, and long after, and still today. Now, with the exception of a small state park that's nearly impossible to access due to the fact that it's surrounded by private property, whose disgruntled owners don't favor visitors or the park's very existence, the Buttes are a collection of privately owned parcels. They consist largely of undeveloped rangeland and almonds orchard, which people in the area, my entire family included, call almond orchards, for, after all, they insist, what do you call the fish that's pink? To visit the buttes, you have to find your way to the park or pay for a guided hike, or you have to be lucky enough to own some of it. Most of the year, the park is closed. This mass of land fascinates me because, it's because it is magnificent, because it is sacred, and because members of my extended family own parts of it, and thus it twines me directly to questions of ownership and of theft, two of California's most persistent stories, and to aspects of my identity and my state from which I'd long preferred to shy away. Oscar, I wonder, uh, you, you grew up in Southern California. Um, did, did, did your family feel 
any kind of ownership of where they were living at the time? Oh, absolutely not. Um, you know, well, we were renters, number one. <laughs> so, um, yeah. No, but I mean, again, there's also that good. So, being, you know, as, as a little kid growing up, one of the things I think this is probably true, I'm sure of all um, Mexican-American families, at some point, you know, they let you know early on, you know, this used to be Mexico. You know, that's why it's called San Diego. You know, that's why it's called Los Angeles. This is why it's called you know, San Francisco, et cetera, et cetera. And, it, it, um, and, I, and I, at the time they tell you that, it's more like a fun fact, because you're not really sure what to do with that. But you, you understand at some level it's supposed to instill some sort of pride. But really what it does is just, to, to answer your question, um, strengthens that sense of dislocation. Where you really don't belong where you belong. Um, I think almost the entire discography of the Stevens and North is about that. It's about this sort of weird duality, because it's a weird duality in the sense that technically you do belong here, but you don't feel like you do. Uh, technically, um, it's everything should be copacetic, but it's all rather contested. Um, and in Southern California, you, you know, it's 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 more pronounced. But I grew up in not, not just Southern California. I grew up in San Diego, um, <clears throat> which is a, a completely different animal. You know, San Diego uh, is where uh, Tom Hanks started the White Area Resistance up in northern San Diego County. It's where uh, Mayor Pete Wilson comes out and the later will bring us Prop 187. San Diego, I'm pretty sure, is the only border city. That is to say, along the U.S.-Mexico border, that has been Republican forever. Once you go east of San Diego, you'll find a very hard time finding towns that are Republican. It's usually Democrat all the way down. Um, and, you know, like even El Paso, which has a Republican uh, a mayor, is, wouldn't even be considered Republican. I'm sure by his party. In fact, as we know, when Trump went down there, you know, to quote unquote console. Um, so in San Diego, it's, it's particularly heightened, um, that sense of, of, of dislocation. I mean, I don't know, it might have been different for kids who grew up in L.A., but, you know, certainly, like, we grew up routinely, you know, called slurs. Um, I think what Robin was saying about violence, I think, is really interesting. Violence was so routine. I should also point out to you, you know, we grew up in government housing. And um, something that you guys might find interesting, I found pretty interesting, whoever designed government housing in California, they use the same design. Um, I, you know, first time I came to San Francisco, I went to the Western Edition, that looks like our apartments. That's the exact same setup. It's the same thing. The, 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 the doors open out to the street, you have the same porches, you have the same, it's a cookie cutter. And we grew up in the same sort of thing down in you know, northern San Diego County. And um, that sort of violence was, I mean, it was, it was, it was constant violence. I can't remember not fighting all through school. Like just just as something you, you, you did. I, I brought this up once with my son because thank God, <clears throat> you know, he's uh, he's raised differently. That's to say, you know, um, growing up in the mission and going to public school in the mission, things are, are different for him. Um, there's a different sensibility, at least in terms of what, you know, Mexicans and Central Americans are thought of. Um, and uh, I remember telling him once about, you know, stories, you tell him stories about, oh man, your deal did this, your deal did that, you know, these, these type of things. And I realized, oh my God, these are all horrible stories. I mean, some of them was like, ah, and then, you know, this guy came by in a car, man, and he was like, mad dogging your uncle, and says, what's up? You know, and then, you know, we beat him up, and then we went to 7-Eleven. <clears throat> and I'm like, 
Dear Lord, like that's not that's that's not Mayberry. That's not that Andy Griffith type of thing. This is horrible. I mean, like, these are all the sort of anecdotes I have from my childhood. And it's like that you know you think back to Homer Simpson. You know, Homer Simpson's a lousy, traumatic childhood. Yeah. You know? uh, but then as I was telling this though this, and I was you know like stunned by just how common it was. Common all the way up until I left, went to college. You know, fighting all the way through. Uh, was you know him turning to me, and maybe this is a good thing. Maybe this is a California thing. Or maybe it's just a San Francisco thing. And he, he just puts his hand on my arm and says, "Dad, welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> we don't do that." Um, Oscar's story, as I mentioned, is a is a kind of ghost story, or, and it's part of a series of ghost stories. And it's I'm going to ask Shobo a question, but it, it strikes me that um, you know you were talking about dislocation and. Nothing um, speaks to metaphorically dislocation like a ghost story because a, a ghost is present and absent at the same time. And, and Shoba's story takes place partly while these kids are watching the shuttle Challenger, but her, her, her parents work at a, at a kind of inn, um, which is a kind of temporary, uh, permanent temporariness. And I wonder if that's also based on your, your life or if that was something that you sort of wrote into the story as you were creating this character. Um, so no, it's not based on my life, um, but it actually was born because I was in 29 Palms, which is near Palm Springs, and I was staying at a motel, and this actually speaks to American violence and the uniqueness of American violence. And by that I mean, I was looking through this, it's called 29 Palms Inn, it's quite the, the you know, sort of famous place to stay there, and they had a binder in every room that like share the history of the motel. And this one that you open it up and you talk about the soil and whatever. And then one line said, what started talking about indigenous peoples of that area. And it said, and due to unforeseen circumstances, they ha- they left the area. And I thought, what? I just threw <laughs> the binder across the room. And I'm like, what is wrong with violence in this country and why can we not acknowledge its true origins and I I mean that seems to me the the heart of what makes American violence in America unique mm. and insidious mm. and refuses its own atrocities and the origins of them and I think this getting back to my story the silence in that family also connotes a, a, a violence within that family that nobody will acknowledge. Mm. And the, the story also revolves around a kind of slow-burning form of economic violence that is sort of coming for the family. And I wonder if you could read just like a tiny, tiny passage from it. Sure, I'll just read from the beginning. Yeah. The perfect reading of this would be just to read the entire issue, but I realize you all have other things to do tonight. Um, I just want you to hear what um, these beautiful pieces sound like, because that's what's, to me, so great about the issue, is just how many different sounds um, exist in one one place. So this story is called The O-Ring. The television cart had a squeaky wheel. Lava heard it. Squeak, squeak. Squeak, squeak, crying out on every revolution like a drunken rat. As Mr. Joliet 
rolled the cart down the hallway and into the classroom. All the kids waited. Evan sat behind her, but she knew he too must be tense, excited. Even the cool kids blinked into the morning sun, looked with new wonder at the snow-covered Sierras. It was first period at Oakhurst High School, and a challenger was scheduled to take off in 20 minutes. A teacher was going up. Every high school in the country would be watching, Mr. Joliet had said. Lava didn't doubt it. A teacher who knew who would be next. At first, there's only snow on the screen. Mr. Joliet changed the channel, adjusted the antenna. They saw the launch pad, the two rocket boosters, the red silo of the external tank, the orbiter. The class waited, the sun not blanketing the bald, low hills, the deer grass and fescue shining like wild fur. Thick white stripes began moving horizontally across the screen. Mr. Joliet smacked the side of the television. It settled back into the image, the voiceover. And then the countdown started. 10, nine, eight. The engines flared, the class held its breath. Seven, six, five. Lava looked at the glistening hull, imagined the astronauts strapped into their seats. Smiling, four, Three. She saw the motel the way they would see it from space, a tiny dot. Or, more likely, the mountains would be the dot, and the Pacific would have the depth of a spoon, still and blue. No, gray, probably, and no bigger than a tongue. Two. One. And there was Evan's coat, the one that brushed her arm this morning. Their lockers were next to each other's. And that black coat, the thought of it cradling his body, was unbearable to Lava in the way the thought of outer space was unbearable. Both so impenetrable, weightless, polished obsidian, the odor of musk. I'm gonna ask two more questions and then open it up. Um, but I'm, my next question is not a question, I'm just, it's actually a directive in the form of a question because Jaime is here and your, your piece kicks off the issue. Um, and again, thank you, Rebecca Solnit, for pointing this out to me that it existed. But um, you know, part of what you're reading about is, is, is returning a spectacle to something intimate where it, was, it didn't have a predetermined outcome. Um, and I think one of the things that I love so much about Jaime's piece, he goes into a, a rest area um, formerly known for its delicious cruising scene um, and finds that it's actually a, a parking lot full of cars and people living in their cars. And many of them are, have just left uh, or fled the Paradise Fire. And one of the things he does in this piece is he sort of stops time and says, wait a second, this spectacle doesn't have a predetermined outcome. Um, we may have made decisions which brought us here, but the outcome isn't entirely determined. We, there's, at least, maybe I'm making it more hopeful than, than you say. And I, I wonder if you could just read a tiny bit from the second half of, of, of the piece. Uh, because I think you, yeah.
right. Um, just, actually, just read from wherever you want. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you. I was uh, not expecting to read it. It's uh, an honor. Thank you. Um, so this is uh, from Fire Notes. Um, My evening commute takes me north on Highway 280 towards San Francisco. 150 miles to the east, Paradise is burning at the heat of the largest wildfires in California's long and storied history of fires. The thick smoke which blankets the entire region for hundreds of miles contains the particulate remains of paradise. It occurs to me that in unison, millions of us are inhaling the sofas and ottomans of paradise, the cars and gas stations of it, the trees and lawns, the clothes and detergent, the wedding pictures and divorce papers, the cadavers. This thought comforts and discomforts me as I drive through the evening traffic. I need to use the bathroom, so I pull over at the Crystal Springs Highway rest area. The rest stop used to be notoriously cruisy, drawing gay and temporarily gay men from around the region <laughs> with the promise of, of nocturnal sex in the bathroom stalls, in the cars, or on the trail that winds up the scrubby adjacent hillside. Increased surveillance of the rest stop, and finally, a mini police station planted near the bathrooms put an end to the nightlife. The now chased rest stop is packed. Its parking lot is sizable with room for 30 or 40 cars, but every spot is occupied. I, fan, I find a patch of roadside and improvise one. I walk to the bathroom and there is not one person in there. Hmm, the whole rest stop is jammed full of cars but no one is using the bathrooms. But it's a rest stop, I think. It's all about bathrooms, isn't it? <laughs> Evidently not. On my way out, I see through the open door that no one seems to be using the women's bathroom either. I walk back to my car slowly, and I notice now that one car after another is packed to bursting with stuff. There are pickups with their beds stacked high with blankets, bicycles, boxes, chairs, Beverly Hillbilly style. My, noise, my nosiness is peaked. I, I slow my walk to a near shuffle and, a, and assess each car. I see a woman in an old Civic bundled up in the fully reclined passenger seat. She is turning about in her blankets, trying to find a comfortable, comfortable position to settle in for the night. She sees me looking fixedly, and I feel a small wave of shame rise and break in my chest. I have been busted being morbidly nosy. I witness this act of settling in, this act that is normally so intimate to be seen only by the eyes of your kin or your lover. Next door, in a little red pickup with, rusted red, with a rusted red hood and bumper, I see someone's hands adjusting a metallic folding windshield sunscreen for privacy. The overhead LED lights shine through the windshield reflecting off the silver screen, and the hands seem those of a deaf puppeteer in a sad and surreal cabaret. I see a bearded man with a steaming cup of something sitting in his car, on his car hood and chatting with a second man in the passenger seat of the neighboring car. I eavesdrop. Their patter is a bit of nothing about the brisk weather, the smoke, backlit by lights from the rest, rest stop map kiosk. Their words exit their warm bodies and become delicate vapor genies 
that dissipate into the darkness. And finally, um, one of the joys of publishing a magazine is, is to have joys and uh, is to have strengths in numbers. Um, you know, Jaime's has a book of short stories coming um, in a year or so, uh, which you will be eventually be able to read. Um, and it was thanks to Rebecca um, that that we met. Um, but the other real joy about this issue is publishing Heather Smith's uh, essay, um, which is one of her not first essays, but it is an extraordinarily deft um, handling of, um, as you can tell, extremely complex history, um, beautifully done. And rather than ask you a question, I just wonder if we can end with you reading a tiny bit from it, um, and then we'll take questions. is 11 short histories of the bison in Golden Gate Park. You're just going to get one. Um, if you walk westward through Golden Gate Park in San Francisco along John F. Kennedy Drive and walk past the Victorian Cupcake and the Arboretum, past the cement rectangle where people roller skate in short shorts to a staticky blue box, past the copper facade of the De Young Museum, past the waterfall, and past the meadow where people gather for soccer matches and family reunions and renaissance fairs, you will find the bison. The farther you move from the park's entrance, the more the manicured landscape surrounding the park's main buildings buckles and dissolves into something more improvisational. The park's eucalyptus trees, steadfast in their determination to kill every plant not themselves, let loose drifts of fragrant acid leaves. The hand of the gardener is undone by the paw, the paw of gopher, and the smooth green turf laid down for the benefit of soccer leagues is pocked with busy holes ringed with coronas of freshly kicked dirt. It is not a landscape that invites lingering, and the bison, or buffalo, which is taxonomically inaccurate, but which it still somehow feels accurate to call them, are easy to miss. To see the buffalo, you need to walk over to a chain-link fence about 10 feet high of the sort that is usually placed around construction sites or very deep holes in the ground, and peer through. The bison look like brown, muppety haystacks. Here are things I have seen them doing, standing on the grass, lying on the grass, chewing. <laughs> the bison's own webpage on the Golden Gate Park website attempts to prepare the viewer for this possibility. <laughs> Overall, don't expect a grand show of movement and daring feats when visiting the bison. They tend to keep to themselves and don't really engage in any exciting activities. They appear in the standing position for most of the day and sometimes sit about. If you are lucky, one of the bison may slowly travel from the field to the corral. Interesting facts, although you may not have the chance to observe, bison are known to reach speeds of up to 30 miles per hour. On the review site, Yelp, write-ups of the bison are next to reviews of local bars and noodle drinks. The bison received mixed ratings. <laughs> it pains me not to give the bison five stars, writes one poster, but I can't, in good conscience, until I see them awake. <laughs> they aren't very entertaining, and they refuse to pose and run valiantly for me, writes another. But nevertheless, it was cool. Star off for not giving me the photograph I wanted and for the fact they look so sad. 
Another posting leaves out the review altogether. What the hell, it reads, a bison doing in Golden Gate Park. <laughs> Does anybody have a question for Jaime, Robbie, Tommy, Heather, Shogor, or, or Tommy? Or Lauren? Uh, or we could just ask Robbie to read, because. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I sense yes. a ground. Yes. 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 Please. yes. Please. 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 It's totally called for. Just one. Just just one paragraph or whatever. I'm gonna get in trouble for asking. Because you promised. How to bartend? I was the best of bartenders. I was the worst of bartenders. <laughs> Everyone disagreed, depending on what they were looking for in a bartender. But everyone agreed that I was a mess in those days. I still find it odd that I bartended. Most of my friends are surprised when I mention it. I never cared much for drinking, rarely spent times in bars, whether gay, straight, or questioning. But for a brief period of time in 1990, Tending bar was what I did. I was 30, back in school, going for another graduate degree I wouldn't use. You might ask, as any rational person would, why was I trying for a third useless degree? Because I was dying, that's why. That made eminent sense to me at the time. To my mind, it was the most rational decision. questions? You don't have to have them. Um, I'm sure there are books, The Angel of History, or The Hakawati, or The Unnecessary Woman, or Kool-Aids, or The Perv. Um, Shoba Rao's books are probably here as well. Um, Girls Burn. Oh, there's a question. Barbara. Tommy, where exactly in Stockton were you? Well, it's east of Stockton, toward Yosemite, on the four. It's Caparabolis, where my wife grew up. Um, so we find ourselves in Stockton regularly, but are you asking? Oh, I, I sort of know Stockton now. It's like every block is a different class of people. Have you seen that in Stockton? It's like it changes by the block. There's like a mansion on one block. And it's a crazy situation or something. Any other questions? Um, I am from Car uh, Carmichael, uh, which is near Sacramento. Um, does anybody have family in Sacramento? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> There's a question back there. Uh, 
That's a really uh, a good question. Um, it's just actually too muchness. Uh, you know, I, I didn't want to... California is an enormous state with lots of different geographies and 40 million people that live here and people from all different backgrounds who've been here five generations, three generations, one gen just arrived, and trying to find a way to represent its um, many, many-sidedness without um, gesturing at representation entirely um, was the hard thing. Um, but finding stuff to put in was absolutely not hard. I could have made two or three of these. And I guess the other thing was, um, you know, the in the city in which I live, um, I think people look at California and they're like, McSweeney's, um, which is a wonderful literary journal. Um, and, and I think they miss, there's like a new projection that m misses what's happening here, I think. And so I, I, there are some really obvious, fabulous, tremendous novelists and poets who live here. Um, uh, but I didn't want to also do uh, what, what was expected. I simply wanted what was really exciting and what was good. So um, not second-guessing that sort of publishing instinct. Be like, how could I possibly have an issue without Michael Shabin? You know, um, and Michael Shabin is a wonderful writer. You know, I, I, and he's, I don't know him. He apparently might be a nice guy. But I, and so I'm not saying he's not in here for any lack of Shabin-ness. Um, <laughs> but rather, you know, um, why, why tell people things that are, that are obvious and to me that's one of the the beauties of coming into a store like this but also um you know getting at to the exciting like breaking front of, of literature um and it's you know the best best book i read all last year was there there you know and thank god he had decided to start writing again um and i could use some tiny weapons on him to extort the story out of him <laughs> So, yeah, that's, those are some of the concerns. Yeah. Um, I just also for you, was like, the theme of memory something you were looking for, or did it just sort of come up, like everybody sort of wrote about it? It's a sort of, this is sort of an ink blotter um, marked by what happens when you say California to people that either are from here or live here. So I didn't, I didn't say anything other than that. Um, and even that was sort of generally not said. It was just basically talking, you know, in Robbie's case, I didn't say, hey, can you write a California essay? I just, he had told a series of stories, which I thought there's a, a as yet unwritten essay that he probably doesn't want to write and would rather, you know, be doing other things um, if I could talk to him and see if maybe he would write this essay. So I, I in general, I wasn't trying to direct either content or basically people at California. Um, you know, there's no definitional California sort of ex expository writing here. It's more what people who are here want to write about. And to me, that's a better way to say, like, not 30 pieces about California, but here are 30 pieces by people for whom California is important. Um, and to me, that's that draws up, you know, more... You know, it's sort of like the maps that Rebecca has made. You know, the the if you say like tell map me the place uh, of New Orleans or San Francisco, people might get very geographical. But it's more interesting when you start thinking of culture and music and stories and how that reshapes a place and how you represent it. And to me, that's sort of more along the lines as to what this is trying to do. Mm. 
two things that are really interesting. I haven't read enough of the book yet, but it seems like almost every piece I know and that I've heard from, I've read yours all the way through, Rabbi, is kind of an encounter. And it's interesting to think of this as a place of comic and horrific and violent and weird encounter. And I wonder how much that happens. I also wonder how you dealt with the geographical representation. And I just want to footnote for curious posterity, the New Yorker once did a California issue in which every story was about LA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I may have overcorrected against LA um, because it's so good at uh, spitting up various representations of itself. And also some, um, you know, there, there's some, I would have loved to have Paul Beatty in this issue. You know, if someone has a special Paul Beatty button that, that can force Paul Beatty to write something, um, you know, because I, I, I think he's, he and Walter Mosley um, and Ishmael Muhammad um, and Danzi Senna and other writers who are Hilton there. Nouse. What's that? Hilton Nouse. Hilton Nouse. No, but are, are just re rewriting LA in its representation. But the encounters, I, I guess maybe the, the group of you could talk about this because, you know, I, I was abroad about a week ago, and one of the things I instantly feel outside the United States, but especially away from the western or southern parts of the United States, is an instant lack of possible violence um, in some public spaces. And I, I, I grew up like Oscar, you know, we got in fights all the way through high school or just really tried hard to avoid that. But every day at, at, and through my school, there was a fight at lunch. And that is bizarre, you know, to have that kind of, you know, lunchtime brawl. But, uh, you know, what, why do you think you came, uh, you know, came, came upon encounters as sort of an or organizing narrative principle? Yeah. I mean, look, well, for me, it's just, you know, like you said before, it's a series of, of uh, ghost stories, something like that. So the encounter was, I guess, what you could call, you know, metaphysical, um, if it's true, um, which is something else I'm dealing with in terms of writing these things, because, you know, I guess it's not fiction. I mean, I don't know. Are there ghosts? I don't know. You know, this is just what I, this is what I've been told. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think in California, maybe there's something about, so there's so many different people here, there's so many different communities. There's so, it's so, to Rebecca's point, so regional. They're just, that if, if you travel any distance in the state, uh, it is, you're constantly in an encounter. There's all sorts of encounters with the history, with just the weirdness of the place in terms of its constant innovation. I don't need a Silicon Valley type one. But when, whereas people just seem to reinvent their lives, and I mean, it's it's kind of incredible that we have a place like you know in L.A. where someone said, "I want to rebuild the Venice canals." Okay, let's do it. You know, um, yeah, these sort of things. You know that we have an uh, island in Catalina with where the real bison are, where they can they can run around and be free. Um, you're constantly in this sort of uh, place where. Well, let me back up a little bit. It's one of the interesting things that California is its crime. Right, um, and one of the interesting things about organized crime in California, particularly as appealed to LA, was that nobody owned the city. It didn't belong to anyone. You know, the whole thing about Mickey Cohen and the way he ran in LA was that it didn't belong to the Chicago mob, it didn't belong to the New York mob, it didn't belong to anyone. It was an open city, which meant that you could come in here and you could do business, and if you try to lock it up, 
that's when people start getting killed. Um, and uh, there's something I think to that in terms of California being open. No one really has a total claim on this place. And I think you see this, this is why these encounters happen over and over again. You know, you're, there's, I mean, even just the idea of like, what's a California? That's mind boggling. Mm -hmm. You know, that's absolutely mind boggling. That could be, I don't know, is it a surfer? Or could it be, uh, you know, someone, uh, you know, uh, of manual labor in Fresno? It is easily someone who lives, you know, perhaps somewhere up in the Sierras. It is, uh, you know, and on and on. You know, it's absolutely indefinable. So I think maybe that's maybe something that was in operation there, that we're always, your sense of self in California, and I'm sure this is true in other places in which you have varied communities and long histories, is is never a given. Your, your your sense of where your what your community looks like and where you're going and what and what's come before you isn't deeply rooted. Yeah. When you just say that, but, but for me, what is great about California and what I why I've lived here for so long is. I may be an outsider, but I'm not the only one. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone can claim to represent California. So for me, as much as you know, I didn't belong, and I thought that no one else belonged, or we all belong. So that there, for me, I mean, right away I got into different communities, different, um, and that's what I've always loved. Well, um, thank you, City Lights. You've been uh, very nice to give us your story tonight and to basically make it possible to have so many um, encounters non-violent on the pages uh, of this store. Um, you know, what's that? The night is not over yet. Yeah, Robbie may beat you with his book um, or someone else's. Uh, but there are books up at the front issues. Um, please grab one. Um, thank you, Peter. Thank you, um, all of you, for coming. Thank you for coming, and I'm sure writers would love to sign their own books. Um, more than this book, um, they might sign this, but you'll have to pay Robbie. Uh, uh, and thank you very much. This has been lovely. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.